Welcome to Making Chips. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. I'm your host, Jason Zenger, and I'm joined by my co-host and my good friend, and sometimes the butt of my jokes, Jim Carr. No kidding. Hi, Jason. Thanks for that. I thought you were going to say, I'm joined by my co-host and sometimes not my good friend, Jim Carr. Well, like, I wasn't a very nice guy last night, was You I? weren't. Oh, man, oh. you were making me nuts. We're, you know, just to tell the story, we had dinner plans, and when Jim well, doesn't eat for a long period of time, he gets super, super crabby, hangry, as they call it. Yes, I will definitely give up a resounding yes to that. I definitely am not a happy camper if I'm hungry. As, and, you know, I've been trying to work out a lot more because I want to get as buff as you are, you know, at my old age. <laughs> Thanks, but, buddy. Yeah. So I've been working out like daily. You know, I always with tell Jim, trainer, we and... should do poolside, you know, shirtless <laughs> podcasts and Jim won't do it. So now he's working no. out so he can. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, I you know, and when I do my workouts in the morning, oh my gosh, by the end of the day, and I, I've had a very challenging week. My dad's been sick and surgery and, you know, a lot, just a lot of things have been happening. And then I had some interviews yesterday and then I was hungry and then Jason's trying to change the dinner plan. He's making me wait like 90 minutes more. 30 minutes. Yeah. But at least, and then I, finally, at least Jim, I got a glass of wine in my hand, and then it made me a little smile. And then finally, Jim was like, well, do you even really want to go out to dinner? And I was like showing my wife the text messages, and we were just kind of laughing at you and making fun of you. And I was like, do you see this? I was like, Jim, just get <laughs> in, a, just get in the Uber baby. and go, and baby. I'll meet you there. Settle down. All well, right. Anyway. I'm glad we understand each other, and I ended up having a great night. Anyways, yeah, we did. So. And, and we're actually here at McCormick Place because we're doing some interviews for their Rockstar series. Not only do they feel that we are rock stars, but they want us to interview some of their rock stars. And what they mean by rock stars are, are people that are doers and dreamers in the manufacturing community, um, manufacturing leaders that are doers and dreamers. And that is their theme for this year of IMTS. And so it's going to be quite interesting to learn from these doer and dreamer manufacturing leaders who you're going to see all around IMTS. So Jim, what is going great in your life or your business right now? Well, I get to go away this weekend with my wife, so that's going to be a good thing. We're just taking a uh, short little uh, 3-2, no, it's a 4-3 night uh, weekend. Just out of town. It's nice that, you know, we're at that stage in our life where the kids have emancipated and we can just do that, you know, yeah. uh, just say, hey, let's go and do it. And um, like I said, it's been a, it's been a challenging week so far and, and we're doing that. And, you know, Car Machine, again, you know, we're, we're busy. We're uh, ready to hire some new people and we've got uh, brand new CNC equipment in the shop and we just started a, a new ERP system and things are busy. That's great. I'm glad to see you, you know, wipe the cobwebs from your wallet and, and buy some new machines. That's I did, wonderful. I did. And you, I have to be honest, too, you know, part of the journey with making chips that we have equipped and inspire everybody in the metalworking nation. Not only us, but our guests, well, mostly. Yeah, but what I'm saying, Jason, is by interviewing all these great people on the show for the last 143 episodes... It has taught me to start really internalizing what I'm doing externally here on the show and start taking action in my own company and doing things. That's so great. It's awesome. It's good to see it come to fruition. That's great. Well, why don't we move over quickly to manufacturing news? And I brought up why this do you want article. To go quickly? 
Well, I don't know, because okay. you told me you did a really long interview, and you know, I don't want people to you know, have to listen to us longer than what That's they really true. want to. That's true. So what <laughs> so do you got for manufacturing? This was man? from the Dayton Daily News, and you know, we've actually highlighted the Dayton community before, and um, you know, that's a heavy manufacturing area. So, um, Is that officially part of the Rust Belt? I think it is. And you know what's interesting? Dayton, Ohio, I don't know um, if they were mentioned in this book, but I recently, my wife recommended for me to read the book Hillbilly Elegy. And it talks about, you know, Kentucky and Ohio and the migration of the Scots-Irish to those areas and as it relates to manufacturing and stuff like that. So it's kind of quite interesting, especially when we read something about from Dayton. So let me read the uh, title of that article. Yeah, Um, It's called Workers Are Number One Concern, Dayton Manufacturing Leader Tells Congress. So a gentleman who is a director for the National Association of Manufacturers recently talked to a subcommittee of the the House Ways and Means Committee about the need for manufacturing jobs, that there is a jobs gap. Um, he, no they, kidding. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've been talking about this for years. Do people outside of our industry like even know? That's the reason that I'm highlighting this article is not because the manufacturing leaders out there don't get this because obviously we do. But it's just nice to see that another manufacturing leader is talking about this to people outside of manufacturing. And as we all know, most politicians, most people outside of manufacturing, not politicians and not politicians, don't quite understand what's going on in manufacturing. They don't understand the immediate need that we have, that we need these skilled um, well, well, workers. they don't understand the industry, A. They don't they, understand the industry. And then they don't understand our pain points. Exactly. So it's nice to see this gentleman, Steve Staub, who is co-owner of Staub Manufacturing Solutions in Harrison Township, talking to the United States House Committee on Ways and Means of Human Resources. Oh, that's so cool. that's it's just really it's cool. just great to see that you know these people. Um, Steve is taking time out of probably his busy schedule um, running his manufacturing company. He employs thirty people, him and his sister and his brother, and you know he's taking time out of his schedule in order to help his peers, us in the metalworking nation, in order to really let Congress know and people outside of the manufacturing industry we need help. That's cool. That's really cool. No, this was a great article you picked, Jason. Um, You know, again, we know, because we're we're industry-specific, we we know the pains that uh, we're feeling right now trying to get, you know, skilled people in here. And it's just, I think we just need to keep hammering it home. Needs to keep hammering it. Hit that nail. Keep hitting it. We got to keep telling people what our problems are because, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil and... uh, we need money, we need training, we need youth, we need a good marketing plan for the industry, and we need to change the image of the industry because it's, as we've been talking about for three and a half years on this show, it is not your father's machine shop anymore. It's not what you think it is. It's a highly technological industry. It's high-paying jobs, and a career in manufacturing can sustain a family wealth for a lifetime. Yeah, you need to think differently about manufacturing, and we need to get the rest of the country and the world to think differently about manufacturing, especially our politicians, the ones that are making the laws. So um, the more that we can be in front of um, the politicians and get them to think differently about manufacturing, the better. Jim, I just want to pause for a second. You know, I really think that the metalworking nation, they want to know 
what does the future look like? What can we expect from an economic outlook? And, you know, we've, we've, we've talked to our friend Pat McGibbon in the past, Pat McGibbon from AMT. And I just want to give him another call and just give the Metalworking Nation an update about what the future of our industry is being forecasted as. So let, let me just give him a call really quick. Hello, Pat McGibbon speaking. Hey, Pat, it's Jason from Making Chips. How are you doing today? Pretty good, Jason. How's it going with you? Good, good. Where, um, so I know you travel a lot. Where's AMT taking you today? I'm in Boston at the uh, Smart Manufacturing Experience. It's a, it's a new type of a trade show for manufacturing technology. Uh, it's, it's, it was, uh, had a great start. I'm looking forward to get back over to the show this morning to see how the, uh, the last day goes. Great, great. That sounds really interesting. Maybe someday I can, uh, I like Boston, maybe someday I can make it out there if uh, SME wants to see making chips. So, you know, the reason I'm calling, Pat, I know you're the economics person at AMT. I don't know, um, I don't recall what your official title is, but I know that, you know, we go to you when we want to know what does the future look like as we can forecast it? Because, you know, the metalworking nation, they make big purchases when they go to IMTS. They might buy, you know, half a million, a million dollar machine. And, and you know, a lot of those jobs are predicated on a good, healthy economy. So what are you seeing into the future, Pat? Well, uh, we actually just uh, did an economic update for the spring uh, last week. And pretty much everyone was involved, thought things were looking really good for 2018. In fact, it looks like it's going to continue into 2019 as well. We don't see any, any uh, great clouds on the horizon out until you get to 2020, 2021. And even then, that's too far away to really get a clear view of what's going to happen. Short term, what we're looking at are some uh, really interesting strengths. The, the air, aerospace industry has gone nuts in the last uh, two quarters. Started off with Boeing getting some really nice orders last June. Then finding out that while it, while it was gone a little bit of a vacation from new orders in the previous two years, the supply chain took a vacation too. And so they've been, have been trying to rebuild that. And it got the supply chain issue became worse uh, in December when Airbus got boatload of orders from the uh, Middle East for their uh, A320. So now that supply chain that really works both uh, big majors is being overtaxed and uh, it's trying to keep up. And so uh, orders are starting to flow in from the aerospace industry, both here and abroad to get back in shape, to be able to supply Airbus and Boeing with the parts and components they need to have to meet the new uh, order obligations they've taken on in the last six months. Besides the aerospace industry, the auto industry, which kind of took a vacation itself in the uh, fall of 2017, is back on track with some pretty big announcements. Back in uh, January, Toyota and Mazda announced a collaborative effort for a $1.6 billion investment in a new car plant, which may seem strange to you. Why would they collaborate? Well, everybody, everybody, as we get closer and closer to the electric car revolution, uh, want to be a little bit more general about how much money they put into certain types of investments that could become antiquated in a, in a heartbeat if uh, electric vehicles were to take off. When I think of Toyota, I think of somebody that's like, you know, a leader in the auto industry and, you know, Mazda maybe doesn't have the same brand equity. So you think this is more of like an opportunity for Mazda and then a means of like risk mitigation for Toyota? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a really good uh, a point. I, I, I do believe that uh, Mazda looking to get a little bit bigger presence here in the United States and uh, kind of the strengths to the back of Toyota helps Toyota, like you said, mitigate its risk about building a plant that might be 10, 12 years ago from now, having to do a complete overhaul to become uh, a different type of vehicle. Okay, so what, where is that pl new plant going into? Alabama. Okay. But they're not the only one. Last summer, uh, GM announced a powertrain going into facility going into uh, Kentucky and one of the things I've seen just recently pop up that's kind of really interesting, you know, we talk about all the auto parts that come from Mexico and are put into uh, 
assembly lines here in the United States that make our products. Uh, actually, a Mexican uh, auto parts manufacturer is putting in a brand new plant uh, in Alabama as well to help service uh, some of its European clients that are putting in facilities and building out new models in the southeast as well. So That's very interesting. Yeah. So uh, aerospace is uh, busier than it can than they can afford. The auto industry looks like it's uh, ramping up to spend some money in the next uh, year, year and a half. And then uh, the third, probably strongest uh, market, is the job shop and contract machining guys. As we've said before on the show, the, the excess capacity for all manufacturers. Manufacturers get beat up, or if they get 100%, they can always send some of their work out to America's uh, contract machining industry. And or they're just generally part of the supply chain. And, you know, to be yes. quite honest with you, some of those more entrepreneurial companies, you know, do it better than the big companies do. Yeah, I can't make a quality statement like that, but uh, you are certainly right about how they make, make a profit off of it. And you can't always say that about some of the big guys. So, yeah, they're back in the swing. The uh, medical equipment industry, which is a big customer for them, is running at 80% capacity. They always like to keep their people completely busy before they put any work out in the field. But to be honest with you, if they were to be the only supplier of medical equipment, uh, we'd only have about 40% of uh, the stuff we have because they li like to have themselves at that level, 40%, and get 60% done outside so they can mitigate the flow over there with people who uh, make investments in their own capital equipment and can move that capital equipment from medical equipment to aerospace or other, some other precision industry. So it's a great relationship. And uh, with the medical equipment industry full to the top and pushing more and more uh, in the increased demand for medical equipment out to the job shops. So that's been positive. The auto industry, a lot of small parts going out to them. And then we just talked about the aerospace industry trying to rebuild their supply chains. What about military and firearms? Well, firearms... It's doing pretty well uh, up in the Northeast. Quite a few orders coming out of the, that particular part of the uh, manufacturing sector. Because uh, I know they they've taken a little bit of a lull just recently. Yes, but uh, anytime there's talk about uh, gun control, the demand for uh, guns go up. And so uh, that certainly has been in the news a lot in the last 90 days. And so we've, we've seen it, orders from that particular industry uh, pick up a bit as well. Uh, and they're using contract machinists uh, as well to try to get a spot demand taken care of by getting a spot supply of particular components and uh, elements back into their production lines. It's a busy time for them as well. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned before that they're forecasting or you are forecasting a bit of a lull in, in the economy in 2021 or 2022. Can you tell us a little bit about why you see that happening? We take a look at what it takes to manufacture or keep manufacturing going in the United States. From the uh, middle of 2017 up until 2019, we're expecting some pretty good uh, growth in capital investment. Whenever we get to a certain level of capital investment, there's a little bit of a lull before the capacity is eaten up and uh, we go on another run again because demand's grown. While we say that, that that's a possibility, it's not a foregone conclusion. There's some things that could change that for the good and for the worse. On the good side, the infrastructure bill that we've been talking about for two years, something both Democrats and Republicans agree about, they just don't agree on how to pay for it. And uh, once they get over that little obstacle, there should be a significant pickup in demand for construction and off-road equipment, and that would help our members. Uh, certainly, would, based upon what's going on, we expect to see more of those kind of people, construction and off-road equipment people, at the show in September, because uh, one way or the other, this infrastructure has to be the issue has to be dealt with. You, know, you have uh, bridges that a huge uh, percentage of them, I think six percent, are at or past their life uh, expectancy. You don't want those kind of things just all apart. People going home from, from work every day, and they, it's not something you do overnight. And that's going to help those, um, you know, construction equipment, OEMs, and everything. Right. On the negative side, things that drag us down. In fact, 
uh, one of the economists we listen to and use quite a bit, Oxford Economics, expecting that if the trade war situation that's issue that's growing stronger and larger thanks to the conflict between U.S. and China on uh, intellectual property, if that really go, you know, blossoms, then uh, we'll probably see a, a point, three quarters of a point decline in our, uh, our GDP. That's a pretty big... That's big, yeah. When you think that we do typically around 3%, when we're, do, we're doing well, take off uh, three quarters and we're doing 2.1. It doesn't sound like much, but it is a big deal uh, as far as the amount of money that goes through the system. So uh, trade war would be detrimental. And then um, on top of that, uh, you've got the, some technological changes going on. A lot like 1999-2000, people were worried about the, the 2000 bomb. What was really the, the bomb was all the new technologies that were introduced, people having a hard time acclimating themselves to that. And as a result, there was a little bit of a, a downturn in business as people uh, you know, got up and running with uh, not only new computer technologies, but with the new manufacturing technologies that were available at the time as well. A lot more productive, a lot more interesting, but being dropped on a, on a group of people that hadn't used them before and had to be trained up. Same thing's going on right now. We're starting to see that edge. You've talked about it before in your uh, other shows. It's great technology, has a lot of opportunities. The number of people who know actually how to make a added design that sings when it goes to the machine, comes out with something brand new and different. That's uh, that's limited yet because so many of our students are still learning. Oh, yeah, we're very much, this is the cutting edge of this, and we haven't perfected it by any means. And so inside, just inside additive, you have so many different things happening. New metals are getting in there. Aluminum right. has been difficult to use. Now there's people out there with aluminum powders that are coated so that they don't just evaporate when you hit them with a laser. You've got uh, carbon uh, being uh, used and printed to, to do temporary work-holding devices. It's really neat. In fact, across the street, a company uh, I had never met seen before, this show, they have a postcard. Hey, we'll let you design your machine on our, on our CAD system via the, a web link, and we'll deliver that machine to you in three days. Um, wow. Yeah. That's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I, I haven't got a chance to talk to the people about you yet. I want to go see how you do that. Pretty exciting idea. Well, why don't you have them give me a buzz, and maybe we can have them on making chips in the future. Sure. Absolutely. They're specialties in materials handling, and um, they get the rails and the robots and everything to you. Uh, with your slot A goes into tab B uh, instructions and you're up and running in days instead of months. Wow, that's interesting. Well, Pat, this has been great. I really appreciate this update. We need to make sure we get you on the uh, on the schedule on a more regular basis because I, you know, I feel like we could talk for hours about this. But I think you know these little ten minute increments are very helpful for uh, the manufacturing leaders out there in order to have an, a better understanding and paint a better picture of the future for their companies. So thank you for this economic update. Oh, no problems. Look forward to seeing you in September. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Pat. Take care. So why don't we move on, Jim? What do you have for us? Yeah, so Jason, have you ever bought a used car? You know, I'm embarrassed to say, but I have never bought a used car. I've okay. sold my used car just okay. recently, but I've never bought a used car. Yeah, I know. I've been very blessed to always have new cars. I know okay. I, I feel kind of spoiled actually saying that. but Well, you, you know, are spoiled, but um, that's thanks. okay. Thanks for making me feel even worse. <laughs> no, well, I've only bought one used car in my lifetime too, and I've been around uh, just a couple more years than you, but have you ever bought anything significant other than a home that's been used like a used toilet or what no like a refrigerator or used used no okay what about a piece of equipment for your what about like a, a okay. saw for your i have okay i, t- I do take that back okay. so we have 
Yeah. We, so at Zenger's Industrial, we have a um, bandsaw manufacturing facility. We cut and weld and grind and sandblast bandsaw blades. And I have bought a, um, a slightly used bandsaw blade welder. Okay. So where I'm going to with this interview that I did uh, with my good friend Ryan Weagle from Weagle Toolworks is Ryan is a young guy that has been active in his family manufacturing company for uh, quite a few years. And I have found that Ryan has been very successful in buying used equipment on the secondary market. And I thought it was really unique because he has had really, really good luck. And I thought to myself, you know, this guy's got good information for the metalworking nation. I have never bought used equipment for my facility. My dad instilled the fact that, you know, we got to buy new. We got to get. We well, always want to be on the cutting edge of technology. Right. Well, that that is a big thing. And it'll be interesting to uh, have you and the metalworking nation hear how Ryan hits that. Because I mentioned that in my interview. He's done a really good job in buying used equipment and also selling used equipment. He's, he's definitely an expert on buying it, but it'll be very interesting to hear how you interpret what he says about buying used equipment on the secondary market. Should we go to it now? Yeah, let's go to it now. I can't wait to learn something. All right. Enjoy. <laughs> Hello, Metalworking Nation. It's Jim here. I am so excited to finally get this guy on the show with us. We've been talking about doing this particular episode now for, gosh, it's been, I I think it's almost two years. And uh, finally, since Jason and I uh, revamped the structure of the show, I said, hey, you're close. Why don't you get over to my office, we'll sit, we'll do the interview, and we'll make it finally happen. So I'm excited to welcome Ryan Weagle. You had this unique skill to identify quality used equipment and bring that into your facility at a discount. Now, I am not a used equipment kind of guy, maybe because my dad put that in my head, you know, decades ago, buy it new, get the warranty. It's not anybody else's problem. Kind of like the same concept with buying a used car, right? You've got the warranty, you've got the brand new car, there's 10 miles on it, feels good, it smells good, right? All of those great things. So that's probably one of the reasons why I've never bought used equipment for my shop. Tell us why. What was the reason why you started venturing out and at least looking for used equipment? Well, with used equipment, I tend to gravitate towards high-end used equipment. So I'm not buying your everyday uh, low-end brand, if you will. So when it comes to CNCs and EDM, I I would tend to agree that you definitely would want to buy new on that end. But also, depends on what type of new equipment you're looking for. If you're looking for a high-end machine, let's just say, for instance, like a Yazda, right? Everyone knows those machines are high accuracy, but it comes with a price. And for that matter, if you can get that machine for half the cost as new, it might be worth it. Because at the end of the day, the way I look at it, I break it down. If it's primarily Fanuc-based control, you can get a warranty for a Fanuc-based control and deliver it on your floor. And you can also have the, the spindles rebuilt as well, too. So if you break it all down, if you can get the cost, half the cost of new, there's a lot of things that you can do that will 
at least give you some reassurance that it actually will be a good purchase for you, for your company. Do you typically look at something that is less than 10 years old or what, what are the guidelines that you're following when you, when, so let's say, you know, I, I know you guys buy a lot of uh, wire EDMs. Correct. You buy Mitsubishi, I believe. Primarily Mitsubishi. Correct. Right. And you've had good luck with them. Yes. So let's say tomorrow you have the need to add another wire EDM to your facility, would you immediately say, hey, I'm going to start looking on the used market and see what's out there? Well, first thing you want to do is if, if you are going to look at a used market, you have to do your homework. What I mean by that, you have to get the cost of the machine new. So once you figure that out and you get the cost, and then relatively, you don't want to pick up anything that's in my eyes between 40, 40 to 60% of the new cost because you also have to factor in the rigging, the deinstall, the reinstall, and what have you. So that's just a, a basic rule of thumb. Then also what you have to do is you, you have to look at the serial number and contact the manufacturer. Do not be afraid to contact the manufacturer. Contact the manufacturer if you do locate a piece of equipment and provide them with the serial number. Once you get the information from the manufacturer that the machine itself has a good bill of health, no major crashes or Is it kind of like a car fax? Pretty you know, much. You know when you buy a used car? I've, I've never bought yeah. a used... Well, I have bought a used car once, yep. but it's kind of like a Carfax, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I didn't even know you could do this. You get the serial number? You get you... you get the serial number. You contact the manufacturer. If you have a lot of the like machines in your facility, they're going to be willing to work with you. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, they want to see their machines well represented in the, at, their, you know, at, at a manufacturer facility. Right. And they know ultimately it's going to be going to a good home. Right. Exactly. So you... They provide the you provide them with the serial number. So you call Mitsubishi. Call Mitsubishi. Hey, I'm looking at this machine. It's five years old. Here's yep. the serial number. Was it in a fire, flood, or a hurricane? Well, I never uh, go down that path, fire, flood, or hurricane. But it's got a good it, bill of health. It's got a good bill of health. And if you and if they would also tell you, ultimately, Ryan, you know, there's been a lot of head crashes with this machine. Stay away from it. Mm-hmm. Or it's had a, a replacement chiller, or it's not um, maintaining accuracy. So they'll give you all that information. I'll, but that's only if the person that owned that machine was getting serviced through the manufacturer, right? That is correct. That is correct. What if they had an in-house guy doing all that, and they were buying the repair parts on the secondary market, and they were doing it in-house? Well, you can also approach that a few other, few ways. Okay. You can have a test cut performed on the machine. So you give them an example. You you set up the parameters. You say, okay, I want to have this piece cut at this setting. Sure. Most likely you want to see it on site. Right. Right. Absolutely. right. You want to see it. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, if, if somebody uh, does a test cut on another machine, it, it happens. So once you get the test cut and results, then you'll 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 see that you'll okay, the machine is, is at least maintaining accuracy and it's and it's is as advertised. They also can do a performance analysis with a certified Mitsubishi uh, technician on site. I forgot what the exact term was called, but I think it was a bar ball test. Yes, we do that on our CNC machines too. That test will also indicate if there's any, you know, if the machine was as good as it left the factory. It just so happens. Who pays for that? Do you have to pay for that? Typically, yes. The buyer will, will pay for that testing, correct? Right. Because the seller is not going to pay for it. He, if, you, if you're saying, hey, I want a cut test done on that machine, it's, it's up to you. Well, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's also negotiable. Or a bar test. Yeah. Correct. Because those, so, those so that's not a cheap test. It's not a cheap test, but if you agree and you go 
if you really want this piece of equipment, and if you ultimately do not buy the piece of equipment, guess what? The seller has that information too. So a lot of times you can also negotiate with the seller and split the cost. Okay. That's fair, I think, if, especially if he really wants to get rid of it. And he says it's everything he's telling you Correct. it is, right? Correct. So then he should have no reservations about letting it go through all the tests. Correct. Have you ever done one of those tests and it, like a cut test or one of those bar tests and it failed or it wasn't good? Well, I actually lucked out. Uh, years ago, I bought a, uh, well, we, we bought a FA-20 machine. And what is an FA-20 machine? It was an older generation Mitsubishi wire machine. Okay. And at that time, we went with the recent control. And I would really stay with the that generation control. I would not go to a previous generation control. So whatever control the market is for that current model, I would stay with that control because outside of that, you get you run into obsolescence and what have you. You definitely want to stay with the latest and greatest. Mm-hmm. So we had similar equipment at our facility, and I contacted Mitsubishi. It turns out they were having their machine serviced by Mitsubishi, so I knew that the machine was was well taken care of. And then ultimately, I got the uh, the price for a new machine. Once I got that price for a new machine, I had a budget in mind to bring it from California and have the technician remove all the power and get it uh, prepped for shipping. And that's very critical too, because with, with wire machines, you, you got to make sure that you brace the head of the machine like anything, like even like with CNCs as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, right. And there are special brackets that Mitsubishi offers. It just so happens a seller... Did not have the bracket. I next day aired the brackets to this company. Right. And the technician put the brackets on, and it's ulti- called a travel kit. Correct. Yep. Ultimately, the machine was was shipped over, and make sure you do not. You also have actually commissioned the entire move through Mitsubishi through their certified transportation companies. You also want to make sure that you have a air ride transportation flatbed truck. Good point. Do not have a regular flatbed truck. You'll suffer dearly for it. It'll bounce all the way down every bump. It'll feel every pothole along the interstate from California to Chicago, right? (laughs) Correct. Yeah. So you buy a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old piece of equipment. But you know, as well as I do, the technologies on that piece of equipment are not like what they're selling nowadays, right? So how do you get around the fact that you're not staying as current with machine tool technologies? You're kind of like playing catch up all the time. What is the mentality behind that? Or do you do a mix of used and new in your facility? Correct. I mean, so Jim here, he's, he's primarily CNC. What we have is a collection of, of different types of equipment. For instance, we have wired EM. We have surface grinders, wet grinders, wet grinders being uh, coolant-based. We have a horizontal machine center. We have a vertical machine center. We have a water jet. We have punch presses. When it comes with punch presses in, in, in particular, we stick to two brands. And for the most part, you can rebuild and replace electronics in a punch press relatively easy at sometimes at, at, a, at a low cost. So what my dad always says all the time that iron is iron. Right, so it never. I could hear him it, saying it. Only it gets, I could just it, hear him saying that. Yeah, it only gets better with age. Right. For instance, one time I actually purchased a sight unseen Minster press. It was a hundred ton press, and did not tour this facility in Michigan. 
I had a budget in mind because this press had the exact specs I needed. It just ultimately had a four inch stroke. So if you know the press industry, strokes per minute is the name of the game. So this press had the correct speed and the correct stroke. And I did not care necessarily how bad of shape it was because ultimately I had this man, this, this, this press rather decommissioned, right? By Minster, the Minster technician went over there and prepped the machine to have it rigged directly to Minster to have it remanufactured. Oh, okay. So you bought it, Minster took it, Absolutely. took it to their facility Absolutely. and refurbished it right there. Correct. So then I got all new controls. Basically, they made the machine like it were. Because iron is iron. Right. Correct. So they, they made the machine and they spec'd out the machine. So it ultimately, it was rebuilt and to 2018 standards. Okay. So- are you saying that on a Minster that there's not the technologies that they're putting in the newer punch presses aren't like the newer CNC machines? You know, like all I can relate to, Ryan, is, you know, like 1,000 PSI through the spindle coolant, you know, larger 14, 15, 16, 20,000 RPM spindles, rapid travels, tool offsetters, probes, and then, of course, the controls are, are really important as well. A lot of that stuff is, is what I call a la carte, right? You could get that stuff and put it on the machine, and it doesn't matter if the machine was built in the 70s or today. You can retrofit the controls, replace the controls. You can rebuild the, the slide. The press technology has not really changed significantly up until a few years ago. What I mean by that, instead of a conventional mechanical press, now we see a growing trend of servo technology. Right, exactly. And that is a game changer. That is a game changer. But as far as we're concerned and, and the type of dies that we're utilizing, we were used to the mechanical press. So we needed additional press capacity. That's why I ultimately decided to go after this, this used piece of equipment. Would you say right now it's a seller's market? Absolutely. I mean, just a matter of fact, today I had a call from a rep that reps high-speed um, brooder equipment, and he's scrambling to find a decent piece of equipment to resell. So he knows that you've got one in your facility, and, you're, and he wants to know if you want to let go of it. And I told him, I said, I would, I would love to let it go, but ultimately I need to replace it with someone else. Right. So unless you find something else for me, I cannot let this uh, machine go. Yeah. I know what the lead times on a new CNC equipment is. Yep. It's, you know months now and it used to be literally they used to stock them before and you could get them right away well that's not the case well just for instance too when it comes to uh bruder if you buy a a new 60 ton long bed these presses are upwards of six hundred thousand dollars versus a a used machine you might be able to get it for 150 200 thousand dollars right that's a big spread it is and when you're able to rebuild the machine on your floor and replace the controls, you're not putting a significant amount of dollars in it. Okay. So we've identified you need a new Mitsubishi. You definitely want to buy a used one. How do you go to market? Do you use broker dealers to look? Do you send them a text and say, hey, start looking for this? Start look. I'm looking for this size machine with maybe less than five years old. Or do you go to eBay or do you go to online resources or all of the above? Tell me the sequence that you use. Well, when it comes to Mitsubishi wires, and, and for instance, there's really three different sizes, if you will, right? So they well, have- it's table size. Their table size is differentiated with their, their model numbers. We typically get what's called a 2400R, 
right? So that machine has got all the bells and whistles from the factory. That machine has been out for a few years, been out since 2012. So ultimately, we go after that model year. What I mentioned earlier, I went after a FA20. That is the older generation. We would no longer purchase that machine. Reason being is because new machines, they consume far less wire, which is about 40% less wire, and they're at about 10% faster. So you talk about technology, especially with wire EDM, kind of goes hand in hand with CNC. The technology is changing rapidly. Exactly. Oh my God. It's, so it's, it's very, it's, so for wire EDMs, I don't want to discourage anyone about, out there. What um, about power consumption too? Have they done real, oh, absolutely. They leaps and bounds? That's, that? that's what I mentioned with the, with the wire consumption. They're, they changed the technology. As a matter of fact, my operator was not keen on the machine at first because the technology was different. Ultimately, when he uh, figured out how to, how to utilize the machine, he will never go back to the previous model. So it takes a little bit uh, time to get adjust, to adjust it to. What about training? When you buy it from the manufacturer or the distributor, they ah, will send five guys yeah. to training in our class. But when you buy it from the secondary market, that's not available. You've got to rely on your relationship with the machine tool manufacturer yeah. to get your guys in there and train. I mean, are they going to train your guys for free? That's interesting too, but ultimately we have a lot of the same similar equipment. So we're kind of blessed right. in a sense where we already have that make and model. We're, we don't have well, to you're, retrain you're ourselves. In that dir- yeah, in, we don't in, have to train ourselves in order to, you know, if we heard uh, a machine that, let's just say a competitor, a Fanuc or a, a Charmy or what have you, right. a completely different type of language, if you will. It'll be, yes, it'll be a different learning curve. But since we are buying like machines, the learning curve is not there. Got it. It's basically plug and play. Totally get it. And the one uh, fortunate thing, we the area where we're at in the Chicagoland area, we're very fortunate that uh, Mitsubishi and other, right down the street and other, other manufacturers are right in our neighborhood. So uh, if we were out of uh, you know Iowa or what have you, I, I would understand their struggle for sure. Absolutely. So how does the progression start? You call your broker. You tell them what you want, and then you start doing your homework. Do you look on eBay? Do you look at on online? Do you look in a catalog? You know what's the name of that thick catalog? What is it called? <laughs> the equipment. I, I get it all the time. Surplus record or whatever. Something have you. like that. Yeah, it's so, so cumbersome. The old, the old I can't stand books, it. I know. Will. My dad yeah. used to look yes. at it years ago. Yes. What is Ryan Weagle's way to start looking for one? Well, I consider myself a Google ninja. So I can find things and there there's certain things that you a can Google do. Google Ninja, I'm gonna write that down. This is a, f- a few things you can do on, in, in Google that you can find machinery equipment. I'm not going to give away everything, so you have to wait for that uh, later or, or private message me. But <laughs> in any case, uh, you certainly could go through eBay and check it out as well as there's there's a few auction websites out there. And you can ultimately, ultimately uh, sign up for auction alerts. So there's things where you can do uh, daily searching or they got these automated uh, alerts, as I alluded to earlier where they'll actually email you if your machine happens to come on the market. So let's say that I'm looking for a CNC machine. Let's say I'm looking for a Mazak 4020 with 12,000 RPM, 30 tools through the spindle coolant. I can go plug all those criterias in, and it'll alert me when one of those comes on. Correct. I mean, you can just do a very general search term. Right. It's a Mazak. Right. Or you can do the Mazak. I would suggest the Mazak and the brand and the model. Model number, yeah. So I'm curious to know if you're loyal to a particular broker or not. 
in my business, I try and stay loyal. I, I want my customers, first and foremost, I want my customers to stay loyal to me so they keep coming back. You know, and I'll do handstands for them if they do and, and they're loyal and I keep getting the jobs keep coming through. So are you loyal to particular machinery brokers or do you use three to five different ones? I want to say I, I am loyal to a few. But what I will say is it depends on if that broker actually has that physical piece of equipment, right? Well, it's I'm, all about them getting yeah, the equipment. I, might, I just, might reach out to my handful of, of brokers, but if they don't have the piece of equipment that we need, ultimately, uh, we can't strike a deal. So they also venture out on their network, too. Right. So it's, it's just they at least bridge the gap for me. Right. How do you know you're getting the right price? I know you before you said 40 to 60% of the original cost. Yeah. So if it's a just hypothetical numbers, if it's a yep. hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment, yep. forty to sixty thousand is what you should be paying for that particular. Correct. But I mean, is it five years, six years, seven years, ten years old? The functionality has got to be different for the age of the machine, right? Correct. Well, as I stated to before, with, let's just say, for instance, the I'll go back to the Mitsubishi example. Okay. So the FA twenty series, it had a good twelve year run. Okay. which is kind of unheard of in a middle-wire arena. During that time, there was really not a lot of changes. There were not a lot of significant changes where this new model was was a game-changer. What I mean by that, it consumes less wire, it's a lot faster, but during that 12-year run with the FA, there was not a lot of changes during that time. Mm-hmm. So when we were able to purchase a machine at 40% of the cost of new, it was worth our while. Because ultimately, we were adding capacity. We already knew what the machine output and how the performance of the machine. Right. What about auction? We talked about auction before. I've talked to you about particular auctions. I've only been to a handful of them in my um, my lifetime. And quite honestly, I was not impressed with a recent auction that I went to. I thought the equipment was all junk. It was a big letdown, let me tell you. I was expecting quality machinery and tooling, and uh, it's not at all what I saw. Well, ultimately, you know, auctions, there's a reason a lot of times these businesses are going under, right? They're not keeping they, up to date. They were not. No, not at all. They definitely had a problem. They definitely had a problem. But in some cases, there might be startup companies that have high-end pieces of equipment that are only a few years old. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, you have to take the good and the bad. Right, and if you have a particular piece of equipment that it's hired as desirable, yes, you definitely want to look at how well it was maintained and kept. But auctions uh, can be uh, very re- rewarding at times, but it also can be very frustrating. Right, because once you start seeing the number escalate, right, and you have a number in your head, sometimes you get a so little. So let's bit- say that forty thousand dollar. Yeah, use that same forty percent. Mm-hmm. But then the auctioneer at tax on what fifteen percent? Typically, so on site, which they're they're kind of getting away from a lot of on site auctions now. It's mostly, right, it's all it's mostly online. online. Yeah, so it's right. either fifteen percent, right? It's eighteen percent is the the buyer's premium, and then another ten percent tax. You don't have a lot of wiggle room, right, right? To play with, right? So once you determine how much what you're buying is for a particular piece of equipment, you just have to put that number in your head. It's when we buy anything in yeah. life. If it's we buy a new car, or yep. we buy a new house, or we buy you know a dishwasher or refrigerator, you got a number in your head. You yeah. walk in the showroom door, you know, this is all I'm paying for that car right there, right? 
So that's I, I guess it's the same mentality, right? But is it a machine that's a year out? Is it practically a brand new machine? You got to weigh out these factors. If it's a if it's practically only a, a few year old machine, and your the manufacturer is for a new machine is is one to two years out, it might be worth you paying that quote unquote premium. Mm-hmm. It all depends, right? Do you have more luck at auction or just utilizing your brokers for used equipment, or both? I would say both. I've had like as I alluded earlier, I had uh, luck with the Minster Press. I've had luck with the F eight twenty. But I've also seen prices that exceed the cost of new. Because ultimately, these people that go on there, they're thinking, oh, it's an auction. I'm getting a great deal. Well, once you add up all the percentage of the buyer's premium and the tax and what have you. It doesn't sound good to me. They didn't do their homework. I'm going to repeat myself a lot multiple times in this podcast. They did not do your homework. When you do do not do your homework, you're going to get burned. These people get burned all the time. I see it all the time. Yeah. And that leads me into... One of our last questions is, can you share with us some success stories that you've had and maybe some non-success stories that you've had? First of all, let's talk about some really good ones. If you, if you want to share with the metalworking community. As far as an auction concern? Well, just you bought a new machine. It was killer. You got it at a yeah. great price. It was local. They rigged it. And it, it hasn't been recent. I mean, how many pieces of equipment have you bought used in the last 10 years? Oh, Real, really rough. I, I more, can't. More I can't. E- yeah, I can't even. I can't even recall at this point because I do a lot of small purchases, small buys. Being, a, which is say, for instance, a, a surface grinder, a Mitsui surface grinder, and if you boil that grinder down, it's about thirty thousand dollars new. And I take those grinders and I send them out to get refurbished. So that kind of goes with your your saying the warranty, what have you. I know, and I give it, give me a peace of mind when I send these grinders out. They get refurbished, and they're they're like new condition. And ultimately, I'm only I'm not exceeding that fifteen thousand dollar mark. So I have twenty of them at my facility that I bought secondhand. No kidding. Just on the grinders alone. Again, that's a low cost, and versus buying a brand new machine and having it rebuilt, and it's like new. Now, when it comes to uh, presses, there's only been a handful that I purchased. One particular uh, piece of equipment I'm very proud of. It was not an auction. It was a, a dealer. He actually labeled the manufacturer of this piece of equipment wrong, and he stated it was a, uh, a Minster straightener, which was not. I looked at it. I had to do a, a double look, at, you know, double take on it, and ultimately, this straightener was in excess of four hundred thousand dollars. Oh my! God. And I ended up buying this uh, piece of equipment for around ninety, and I got it refurbished around that same amount of money. So ultimately, it's about half the cost of new, right? So that's a huge success story. One time I got real burned was a punch press. So there was a press here, right here locally in Elk Grove. And the way that the auction set up was- Oh, so it was an auction it buy. It was an auction buy, right? Yeah. So one and time- And you were probably kind of a knob. You were kind of green probably at that I time. I was too. very green, yeah. yeah. Was, this was early in my career. So the way that the auction house set it up was that if the coil line exceeded- the bid for the press itself, the buyer would actually win the entire bid. So my brother and I, again, I'm green at this, we were bidding on the press alone. And ultimately, the coil line exceeded the press. So the person that purchased the coil line as an added bonus, if you will, got the whole entire line. Now, he ended up Uh. walking away with this press for $150,000. That press today is well over a million dollars. 
Oh, wow. That to me was will always stick with me as, as one of the worst things that ever happened. You'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. You'll never do that no. again. Yeah, before we move on, once you find a quality piece, how do you know what the true value is and how do you go about bidding and offer and price negotiations? You know, like who pays for the rigging? Who pays for the trucking? Well, ultimately, if you buy from an auction, it's usually the buyer's responsibility. And when you buy from the auction, they have already pre-approved riggers on site. So you really don't have much of a choice. You have to use you have their, to use their riggers. Okay, but as far as their transportation, I would say the machinery movers, rather. right? The machinery moving is going to be for the buyer, right? Well, you don't know if it's going to be cross town or cross country. Correct. But what you can do is send your own technicians, being from the manufacturer, or if you want to send your own staff to remove and deinstall the machine in order to prep for hauling. So that you can do. That's that's the one good thing that these auction companies allow you to do. Price negotiation for selling equipment. It's kind of funny what the way that works. The way ultimately, when I have a piece of equipment I want to sell, these dealers they play the game with you. They always say, "Well, how much do you want for it?" I know. Yeah, but if you don't know what it's worth, you know. Well, you, well, you, this want, is you not want my the, job. You want the most money for this is, it, right? This is not my just job. Just bring me the most. Yeah, money. Yeah, just bring me the most money. But ultimately, they will never give you a price. Right. If you ever watch a show, Pawn Stars, I'm sure a lot of viewers. I've heard of it. Yeah. They always ask the prospect seller how much you want for it. They never come out and say, I'm going to give you X for this pawn you're trying to sell. Right. They'll never give you a dollar amount. So what you do and how do you combat that, Yeah. especially with eBay, you get pricing on eBay, right? Right. It, it's a good benchmark. It's a good benchmark. Yeah. What also you can do too is you could also look on Google if you find a piece of equipment that is. I don't know what you mean by look on Google. I mean, okay. w- w- here I'm right on my computer right now. What, what what am I searching for? So if if you have, for instance, let's just use Haas because okay. Haas there's there's a slew of them out. There's the a lot of them. Okay, yeah. Chances are you are going to find a used Haas on VF2. the market. Yeah. VF2. So if you search in that VF2, you're going to get a dealer that is selling them. Now, ultimately, they might not disclose a price. So what do you do? You've got to find out what it's worth. You request a price. You request a price. Yeah. Say so that you're, say he, so that he's going to come back and he's going to say it's $100,000 for that machi- machine. And you're going to say, dude, I can buy a new one for seventy. Correct. But at least you know you have a gauge what the machine is selling for. Ultimately, you can also spin it too. If he's selling for a hundred thousand, if you have him the same machine, say, "Hey, I have one as well. Would you like it? Would you be interested in it?" That's how you can spin it too. How you get a request for quote mm, from them? I see what you mean. Good. We are getting a little bit long on time, but um, I did want you to add in and and share with the Metalworking Nation a little bit about what you do in in your strategies to sell used equipment on the open market. Based on my experience, it's been a very difficult at least in my eyes, to sell to an end user. Jim might ha- might disagree with me, but I've tried avenues as far as eBay. Typically, I I've ha- done I've done really good on eBay. So I gotta I gotta tell you, I actually really I good. actually had a very good success doing my own little thing. So ultimately, what I ended up doing was we had surplus equipment at my sister's company, Aero Metal Stamping. Okay, so I took a bunch of pictures. I made an album through Facebook through the company Facebook, All right? And then I copied that link. And reposted it on LinkedIn because LinkedIn, you're only limited to one picture, right? It's like a double whammy, a double share. Okay. You take that link, you, sh- you share it on LinkedIn. That way, 
the users can click on the link, go to your Facebook page, and view all the piece of equipment. You can also, with the pictures itself, you can also hash them as well. So then you get the keyword searching, what have you, too. Yeah. When you do that on your company pages, obviously... You can optimize each picture. Correct. Yeah, I understand. But I you can it. also, too, I, I highly advise to do on your company pages versus your own personal page. I mean your organic page, not your Facebook page. Not even your Facebook page. So you would share it on your Facebook page. Right. As your on your company page. And then if you want to share it, you can share it on your personal page to drive right. that traffic. Yeah, I am, I'm, I'm with you. Right? Same oh, thing uh, with LinkedIn, right? So you want to share it on your LinkedIn company page. Right. And if you want to share it more, you can share it on your personal LinkedIn page as well. Mm-hmm. You always want to drive traffic through your company pages on right. social media. Yep, I get it. As far as uh, video is concerned, yeah, ultimately you can put a, a YouTube link on there. Yeah, you can. You know, a, a lot of times being in the CNC world, you, you want to hear the spindle. You want to hear if it's if it's still. You must in, have listened to my. You <laughs> must have li- seen my eBay listing. And again, you know, even when I'm buying a new piece of equipment, I am I don't shy away from if the buyer discloses that they have a bad spindle. I don't shy away from it because I have a network of people that can rebuild this spindle. Right. And I get the cost what it, what it would be to fully refurbish that spindle and remove and replace. And that's a part of negotiation with the seller. Yeah. Well, they know too that they're going to have to devaluate yep. it because Correct. the spindle's bad. So, but again, it's just it, how much? It depends. I mean, if we're talking a, a high end Yazda and it's got a bad spindle, it's worth refurbishing. Yeah. If you got a low end piece of equipment with a bad spindle, it might not be worth it. What's turnaround time on having something like that refurbished, having a new spindle put on? We had an optical profile grinder and the spindle went bad. And it was the only way to get a new one was from Japan. All right. Out of Japan. I know. That's a couple miles away. Yeah. So ultimately, we elected to buy. Actually, the manufacturer suggested that we go to the spindle house uh, located in Michigan to get it rebuilt. And the turnaround was less than two weeks. Oh, wow. That's good. So we were able to build up a bank of optical profile punches, and we were able to work around it. We removed the spindle, put it back in, and we were good as new. Awesome. So time's just about up, Ryan, and um, it's it's been a pleasure. There's so many more questions I got for you, but what I typically like to do in closing, can you leave us with three of the most important tips? I always like to say three bullet points that the metalworking nation can put in their head before they go to buy. Let's just concentrate on buying because a lot of people are buying right now. People are busy. People need machines in their shops. What are the three most important things they need to think about when they go to market to buy a used piece of equipment? You have to do your homework. Okay, do your homework. So you're going to do your homework through benchmarking. Through benchmarking. Also, you have to do your homework if you're buying a used piece of equipment. Contact the manufacturer of piece of equipment. Yeah, that's a great, that was a great point you, you mentioned. And make sure you get the serial number from the seller in order to verify if the machine has had a bad history or for that matter, a good history. You need to verify that first. Get the car fix. Two, you have to find out what the machine is going for new ultimately, right? You never want to pay uh, a used machine a full for a full dollar amount. You have to always factor also too that it's as is where it is. There's no warranty, right? What price tag do you put it on your warranty of the machine? So that's another thing you have to factor in. Three is you're going to laugh, but have fun, right? Have right, fun I- and treat it as a hobby. If you have a need for a machine, 
And if you can take your time doing your homework and searching for a machine, it can be frustrating at times, but it can also be rewarding once you find that, what I call a diamond in the rough. Awesome. Well, I know Brian's been really helpful with giving us tips and tricks on used equipment. And he told me to give out his uh, LinkedIn if you want to connect with Ryan. Um, Ryan would be happy to share some more in-depth insight as to what he's learned about buying and selling used equipment on the open market. Ryan's last name is spelled W-I-E-G-E-L. And that's Ryan Weagle at Weagle Toolworks in Wooddale, Illinois. Just uh, search on LinkedIn and you will find him. Uh, Ryan, what a pleasure having you on the show finally. And appreciate uh, you stopping by. And let me know if you hear of any success stories. Very cool. Thank you, Metalworking Nation. It's been a pleasure. Jim, that was a great episode. I learned a lot. I mean, there were some things there that you know I never would have thought about calling the uh, OEM and telling them, "Hey, I've got the this serial number. Yeah, I've got this new machine. Here's a serial number. Can you tell me some of the history on it?" I know that you know there's organizations that when you buy a used car, they do that, but I would never have thought of that for a press or for you know a CNC machine. So that was great information to get. Well, Ryan has a good relationship with his OEM manufacturers well, too. Well, they're, they're so going to be willing to talk to anybody, they I would, would be assume. Willing to and, talk you know, and so it's in their best interest to give that information out. And it was also interesting to hear that it is a seller's market right now. I mean, I knew that, but it was good to hear that from somebody like Ryan who understands it. And I know that you told me recently that you listed one of your older machine tools and you had a guy drive from Canada I did. <laughs> to go see it. I mean, just to view the machine. I know. Isn't and, that crazy? Well, it's not crazy if you've got jobs to get out. And if you buy a new machine, right. you're going to be waiting months for that new machine. So if he sees a quality used machine at Car Machine and Tool that can get the job done, he needs to take care of his customer. So right. he's going to drive down eight hours from Canada to go check out your machine. Yeah. The other thing he said, too, that I thought, thought was really interesting that I can relate to is taking test cuts on it. So if, if there is a, a CNC precision machine tool, three axis, four axis, whatever the case may be, he says it shouldn't be a problem. Just say, hey, can I come in? I'll grab a piece of aluminum. We'll throw it in the vise and we'll take some test cuts. See if, and you know what? We'll adjust the cutter comp diameter to see if it, you know, if take off two tenths. Is it going to take off two tenths on the, on the part? It's really kind of smart. And you know what? It's so easy to do. That was the beauty of it. And that's what shocked me. It kind of like woke up my head and said, hey, he's really got some great ideas here. Yeah, it's like test driving your car. I mean, it's you like don't want to just driving the car. You don't want to just buy a car without test driving it. So take some test cuts. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, what I would recommend is if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to know the history of Weagle Toolworks and their associated companies, I would suggest that you go to the other episodes that we had with Aaron Weagle and with... What episode is Aaron's? Aaron was episode 12. It was wow. a long time. Time ago, and so I would. I wouldn't uh, recommend listening to that one. Go back and listen. We're, to, pre it, we're pretty green back then. Yeah, it was about family business succession. Yeah, that was a good one. And then though. we also had uh, an episode with Erica, which was episode fifty nine, yep. which was about women in manufacturing. And I would suggest just go listen to that. You can hear a little bit more about the Weagle family. You know, we kind of felt bad leaving Ryan out of it. So we, I didn't you know, feel we had bad. To, I just, I just, I just, I'm kidding. No, I'm just, I had to get know. him 
in because he had a great I, subject matter that you know his brother and sister didn't know anything about nothing and, um and so he's the subject matter expert there and i think that he could help the metalworking nation to make better used machine tool buying decisions and what i would also ask is did we miss anything did ryan miss anything did jim miss anything in this interview and if you've got some feedback and say you know hey you guys missed this point that i use when i buy used machinery Hit us back. Yeah. Email us. Email Jason at Making Chips and email uh, Jim at makingchips.com and let us know. And if you've got a different process, we would love to hear from you. But if you do need to buy a new machine tool, get that checklist of things that you go through based on this interview and really make a good buying decision because you got to make sure you don't waste your money when you buy a new machine tool or a new a new machine tool. So make smart decisions. And I think that Ryan can definitely... He did say on the episode too, that if you wanted to reach out to him through LinkedIn, that'd be fine as well. Great. That he'd be more than happy to um, engage with somebody that had any additional questions. So great. Well, I'm glad you for, enjoyed yeah. it. I'm, yeah. Thanks yeah. for the great interview, Jim. Yeah. No, no worries. It was my pleasure. And um, thank you again to Ryan for uh, coming on the show and sharing with the metalworking nation his unique skill at buying this type of equipment. IMTS North. What do we have there, Jim? Oh, God. IMTS North. Gear generation, abrasive machining, sawing and finishing and fabrication laser. That is a cool building to be in. Yeah, I agree. I've got some friends that are going to be in the North building. Lennox, Cosin, bandsaw machines, bandsaw blades, fabricating laser. That sounds pretty cool. I don't know you, too much about that. You've been doing that, your though. homework. Oh, I just know. Yeah, you know, you I'm do. A, you know, I haven't forgotten everything. So yeah, no, it's, it's a cool building, the North building. Once again, gear generation, abrasive machining, sawing and finishing and fabricating the lasers. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to head over there. We're going to be there every day. So absolutely. But don't forget, IMTS is September 10th through the 15th, 2018 at McCormick Place, Chicago. Early bird pricing is before August 10th. Go to IMTS.com right now and register and get your room. <laughs> Metalworking Nation, listen up. Manufacturing is challenging. You need to think differently. The day-to-day whirlwind of urgencies, the pressure to grow, customer demands, workforce development, new machine tools and robots, the list goes on and on. It is possible to stay ahead of the game of manufacturing, but you can't do it alone. We're here to give you access to exclusive content from other leaders, as well as videos, blogs, show notes, and more resources designed to equip and inspire you on making chips. When Jim doesn't eat for a long period of time, he gets super, super crabby, hangry, as they call it. Yeah. And I was like showing my wife the text messages, and we were just kind of laughing at you and making fun of you. And I was like, do you <laughs> see this? I was like, Jim, just get Look at in, what a, just what get a in the baby. Uber and go, what a big and I'll baby. meet you there. Settle down.